As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. On today's show, we're asking if Erling Haaland actually makes a team better. We're talking about club philosophies, the best awarded American soccer player, and the players that make us squeal with delight. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who makes all and sundry squeal with delight upon hearing his dulcet <laughs> tones, King Peach, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. <laughs> That was quite the introduction. I don't know if any of it was true, aside from King Peach, but I appreciate it all. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Thank you very much, Taylor Rockwell. Listener, just to let you in on this uh, non-visual medium, Taylor has a scarf hanging uh, behind him, which says King Peach. It catches my eye every time. I love it. I will. It's right there. It's yeah. right there. Yeah, I'm pointing at it. It is indeed. King Peach, Taylor Rockwell, everybody joining us. There's a, a tractor who's... over here. Huh? Yeah, Am I just, helping? Yeah, no, just, I'm not. Just all jump right. around my intro and talk about your tractor. <laughs> Fine. Any more? Sure. Any more? Uh, it's red. No, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll keep going. Joining us is a man who's been spending his days at USMNT training camp, Joe Lowry, who woke up 12 minutes ago. Hello, Joe. Hello, Ryan. We're up to 14 minutes now, so I'm nice. two minutes more awake than I was two two minutes ago. Did I do that math right? I think I did. You did. Um, how's California treating you? Are you talking about all the various roads and interstates you took to get to places? I, I'm not. I don't. I don't really understand what all the fuss is about <laughs> California driving style. It feels feels fine to me. Um, but no, I, I took the 405. Ryan, is that what you wanted to know? I took the 405. Yeah. To the yeah. 10? No, no 10. No 10 yesterday, at least. How about that traffic, Joe, huh? Oh, the traffic. Tell me about it, Ryan. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Well, Joe, joining us, a man recording uh, after 60 Darvel, Darvel, dumped Aberdeen out of the Scottish Cup. Graham Rutherford, one of the biggest upsets in Scottish soccer history. Are you reeling? Uh, I am not reeling, certainly not as much as Aberdeen fans and, and Jim Goodwin, the Aberdeen manager, is this morning. He will probably lose his job because this was such a bad defeat. Yes, you're right, Ryan. One of the biggest shocks in Scottish Cup history. I'd say one of the biggest shocks in British football history. 
I would hope Stirling Albion would beat Darvall convincingly, and yet somehow they beat fifth place Scottish Premiership team Aberdeen. I mean, Aberdeen aren't very good at the moment, so maybe not all that surprising. But none of their players are actual soccer players. They all have day jobs and then went and played a soccer match at night and beat Aberdeen. So well played to them. Graham, does Scotland need six divisions when it comes to that pyramid? <laughs> that is a discussion about Scottish football <laughs> that has been going on for a long time. Right. Yes, it is, it is amusing to Scottish football fans who keep an eye on American soccer that you guys are a country of 350 million people and have, what, like three or four tiers and only one top tier. And yet we have, I think, about nine tiers of, of clubs. Yeah, maybe too many clubs. And yet over here, everyone loves that structure and it's never yeah, been no a source of debate at all. Yep. <laughs> no complaints. <laughs> Keep it closed, baby. Anyway, um, before we get to the action, uh, some business we have to take care of. Gareth Bale, who retired a couple mm. of weeks ago. I'm sure you've all seen Jeds. He's back in golf form, as we expected. Uh, he's joining a PJ Tour event. Uh, he's going to compete in February's AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am in California. Now, Graham, this sounded very impressive from the headline. Then you look into it. He's joining 156 amateurs, including Bill Murray, Jason Bateman, and Macklemore. Um, Macklemore. Wow, there's yeah. a blast from the past. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not exactly on the tour, shall we say, at this point. Well, I believe that's maybe the sixth tier of the tour, so yeah. he can maybe take inspiration <laughs> from Darvall beating Aberdeen. He's not far away. Uh, Graham, would you like to know Gareth Bale's handicap? Uh, yeah. Do you know it? Yeah, he played for Spurs twice. <laughs> Ah, there we go. Uh, No, it's it's actually two. He plays off two, apparently, which um, I think you have to play off scratch to be a pro, I think. So he's nearly there, I guess. Mm. See, I've got visions of him at Larry David's golf club battling swans. Yeah. And (laughs) if he's out in California. Upsetting the very angry manager for uh, wearing his his whale's flag on the uh, ninth hole. We shall see. Anyway, uh, let's get to the listener questions. And guys, if you have one, please send it in totalsoccershow.com slash listener questions. That's probably the address, isn't it? Yes. And also, while we're here, patreon.com slash totalsoccershow. We're having a lovely old time on Patreon. A fantastic community in our Discord as well. So please do join us there. But in the meantime, Shreyas Romani has been in touch. Hello, Shreyas. Who says, I saw someone post this question on Twitter and I thought I'd ask for the crew's thoughts on it. We're the crew now. Nice. Does Erling Haaland's goal tally match up to the impact he actually has on matches and on his team? City's attack looks worse than it does last season, despite his 20 goals, and Dortmund never really got any closer to challenging for the title when he was on the team. Taylor, this is a very interesting one. I've heard this discussion had a little bit elsewhere in the past week or so as well. So I looked at the stats. Last season, Man City scored 99 goals in 38 league games. That's 2.61 goals per game. This season, they're on 53 in 20, 2.65 goals per game. So a very, very, very fractional increase Mm. in goals per game with Erling Haaland on the side. We know Pep's changed his philosophy of sorts. He's had to accommodate Haaland in this team. Has he made City better? And does Haaland make City uh, teams better in general? Uh I have an answer to this, and the logical place to start is with the Jurassic World franchise. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I have seen one and a half of those movies, and it seems to me the central plot point is, what if raptors were used in the military? I don't know why that was a thing that people thought needed to happen, but it seems to be a thing that the U.S. military wants to happen. And so Erling Holland at Man City is a bit like having a velociraptor on SEAL Team 6. Like, if you need to clear, clear a room... Uh, 
it's going to do that. It's not going to do it like with military precision and efficiency, but it will absolutely get the job done. And that is sort of what I see uh, Erling Holland at Man City as being. He is a player who I don't think is necessarily going to be that like fine-tuned attacking machine, but he's a player who can make a difference on his own. I would say similar to Kylian Mbappe, but then there's the physicality as well. And so I think to some extent, the Man City attack doesn't have to be as perfect as finely tuned because you have this instrument that you can put in there, a velociraptor in a crowded room, if you will, and it will find a way to get a hat trick. So I think that's kind of my assumption is that's the approach for this season is to, because early on there were the comments about how he, he needs to kind of learn how to train the Man City way. He needs to learn how to play within the system and I think this is Pep sort of using him as best he can and then if Pep is still there next season I think it's about then fine-tuning that even more to make that attack even more efficient but I think it it makes it better in some ways and worse in others but I am still very much in favor yeah. of Erling Holland at Man City and, and Taylor to continue your incredible analogy <laughs> like that is just elite <laughs> level stuff I will say it would take Thank a you. Velociraptor some time to figure out how to properly fight on SEAL <laughs> exactly, Team 6. Right? Exactly. And that, that's ultimately and maybe some I, teammates get mauled along the way, right. as we've seen Erling Holland doing goal celebrations. Ultimately, you got to do works. what you got to do. You got to do what you got to do. So I, I think I think the Velociraptor – wait, I'm really going to beat this thing till it's dead. I think the Velociraptor <laughs> on SEAL Team 6 raises SEAL Team 6's ceiling, but uh-huh. maybe lowers it in the near term. Right, And that's sort of where I come to with Holland. So TIFO – if you don't watch TIFO, they do incredible videos on YouTube. They're, they're part of The Athletic. They do a fantastic job. TIFO just had a video on this very topic, and basically, John McKenzie walked through some of the, the underlying numbers. And, Ryan, you mentioned the goals per game being up. That's great. Really, the underlying numbers aren't quite as good. Well, expected goals, expected goals allowed, and, and, and expected goal differential, which is just those two things put together, are all down, like noticeable amounts for Manchester City this year. And I I do think we can put some of that on Holland. Holland doesn't help you control games. Holland helps you break games. That's that's what he does. So it's harder for City to control a match because you lose out basically on an extra midfielder. You don't have Phil Foden and Kevin De Bruyne and Gundogan and Rodri and whoever else. You don't have those six players on the field at the same time. Instead, you have five of them and Erling Holland. And that does change the calculus a little bit. But I think if you're Man City... I think you take the hit. I think you almost always take the hit in the near term. Maybe we'll we'll look back and this will be a bad decision on their part. But as a neutral, at least, I'm glad they took the hit because then you know maybe there's a little bit of a drop now. And it does seem like we're seeing that. But in a year or in two years, I really do wonder what this team could be. It could be something that we've never seen before in soccer with that perfect blend of control and sort of controlled chaos. <laughs> I think it could be something great. Graham, I guess what City didn't, City didn't ask whether they could sign Erling Haaland, but whether they should. <laughs> Basically, Man City need Chris Pratt to come along and can control the Velociraptor because for decades, Jurassic Park was all about you can't control these dinos and then Chris Pratt comes along in, in the more recent ones and that is his whole thing. He can control the dinos. So Man City need to, to, to give a call to uh, Chris Pratt if he isn't too busy doing oh, every job in Hollywood so at the dumb. moment. They're so dumb. <laughs> it makes me so mad. Anyway... <laughs> Yeah, I think Taylor and Joe, with the sincere stuff, I think they covered it well already. I think in the long term, Haaland will make City better, but right now there's an adaptation period happening. One other thing, sorry, the the Dortmund part of this, and I'm not saying this is Shreyas' idea, it seems like this this came from somewhere else. That part's a bit silly to me, because Dortmund or Dortmund and Bayern or Bayern, also Haaland was injured for a lot of of his time in Dortmund, so I don't really think it's Haaland's fault that Dortmund haven't flipped the table Mm -hmm. in the Bundesliga. 
alternatively, you can take the man out of Dortmund, but you can't take the Dortmund out of the man, and that's why City are second in the there Premier League this season. Oh, <laughs> oh dear, on the roller coaster. I'm just now picturing Pep uh, before the Wolves game or after the Wolves game when he sees him score a hat trick, sort of on his haunches, saying, "Clever girl, clever girl." <laughs> I'll see. The only thing—that's <laughs> well done, Ryan. Uh, the only thing I would say about the Dortmund one would be that I think Holland reaches a point in his Dortmund tenure when. Like the team is definitely going to like orient around him, and I think Man City still does that to some extent. But under Pep Guardiola, with some of the talent they have, I think that is one of the situations in which Holland like changes his game a little bit. I think there are scenarios where he moves to a club, and that club is Erling Holland and ten other guys. I don't think Man City is that, especially with Pep Guardiola in charge. So in that way, maybe there's a little bit of truth to it. But I agree with Joe. I think overall, Dortmund, Dortmund, Bayern, Bayern injuries are still injuries, and here we are. I think it's the midfield that needs to change for Man City. And actually, I wonder if you put Arsenal's midfield into this City team. I I wonder if actually City improve on that basis because you look at the energy that Arsenal have from Odegaard and and Granit Xhaka and how much ground they're covering. And that feels like something City need to do in the middle of the pitch now that they are in in possession and build-up play, essentially a man down. I went back and looked at some of the games that Phil Foden played as a centre as a centre forward last season and there was one game in particular he was really impressive in against Chelsea where he had the fourth highest the fourth most touches of, of the ball of any City player now for someone playing at centre forward that's that's pretty incredible and now we a season later we've Haaland in some matches going through an entire half in double in double digits for, for touches so there needs to be a compensation somewhere in the team I think that needs to be in that in the City midfield and if you look at the three players that most commonly play play in that midfield unit for City, De Bruyne, Rodri and Gundogan. Gundogan and even De Bruyne, I mean, he's over the age of 30 now. They're maybe getting on a little bit and not yeah. able to cover as much ground as, say, the Arsenal midfield is able to. Yeah, I think that's a part of it as well for City. They are, it feels like we're getting closer and closer to the end of the cycle in Manchester City with some of those players and some of their ages. Graham, I think that's a great point. One other point on this whole Holland striker situation. Remember when everybody was saying, like, City just need a striker, right? That's going to fix everything. I, I do hope this sort of proves that soccer is a little bit more complicated than that and that you can win without a striker and that you can lose with the best one maybe the world has ever seen. I mean, Erling Holland has 30 goals. 30 goals on January 24th, as we're recording right now. 25 in the Premier League and 5 in the Champions We've League. We've had a World Cup as well. We've got a <laughs> World Cup break. in the middle. This is, this is the greatest goal scorer of the modern era, and I'm not really sure it's particularly close. He is actually a goal-scoring robot. It is absurd, and I think, honestly, that is going under-discussed by people like us and pretty much everybody in the soccer world because what he's doing is insane, and we haven't seen it in a long, long time. That said, soccer is just really hard, and even having a goal-scoring robot doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be the best team the world has ever seen. So, I don't know. I just think some of that narrative was silly at the time, and I think this sort of proves that. City, City needs a, a centre-forward who you know can drop deep and link the play. Maybe someone like Gabriel Jesus would, would fit the bill for them <laughs> if they could get that deal done. That took me a minute. That's interesting. wonder if he's available <laughs> soon. We'll see. Uh... Thank you very much, Therese, for that question. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about identities and philosophies. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Jack Bradford has been in touch. He says, I hear you guys talk about clubs building around their identities sometimes or mentioning things like Red Bull football. What does this mean? Is it clubs having a tactical or strategic identity? If it is, why is this the case? In American sports, a handful of iconic franchises like the Yankees or the Heat have known cultures, but that's more about how players present themselves and attack training and fundamentals. Specific play styles are associated with coaches who pioneered them because the coaches are experts on that play style. Why is this approach not adopted more? I kind of feel like it is adopted in that sense, Joe, do you not feel that way? I mean, when you when you talk about let take Man, take Man City for example, who who are a club known for having a philosophy in place. Who, when the takeover happened, they knew long before Pep Guardiola arrived mm. that they wanted Pep Guardiola. The coaches they had before him almost paved the way for him. The players they were getting were almost for that Pep Guardiola style of soccer. So they are the the, the culture. The, the coach is basically hired to suit the philosophy of the club in most instances. Right. Is that fair to say, Joe? Well, in, in well-run clubs, I would argue, yes, that does happen a lot. In a Not lot of Everton. the rest of the soccer world, <laughs> it doesn't happen, really. So I, identities, Jack, I think identities can mean a lot of things, but I like to think of it as the philosophy or the style. And you kind of get at that in the question. It's like it's like the glasses that they view the world through, right? Like So Red Bull, for example, for a long time, has viewed soccer as a sport through this this lens of being a game that involves a lot of running, is high energy, and that happens to fit with the fact that they are a company that literally sells energy drinks and markets themselves off say, of... I going to say, Joe, Red yeah. Bull actually sees soccer as a marketing exercise. Right, true, true, right, but even the style fits within that. So it's a, Red Bull's <laughs> a weird example. I, I want to go to Ajax instead. <laughs> Ajax... Wait, I'm now obsessed with this idea, sorry, Joe, that like if NyQuil buy a team, are they just going to be like very slow, it's just very defensive? It's just it never occurred to me that Red Bull mirrors their playing style. Yeah, that's abs- outstanding work. I, I can't I, wait I for the new NyQuil drowsies to come out. They sound there fun. Go. There we go. <laughs> we all know Graham would buy a NyQuil FC kit. Uh, <laughs> he would. With Ajax, a team in, in the Netherlands, they have valued the ball for a really long time. And there's a benefit to that. There's a bunch of different benefits to that. There is one benefit for the senior team of having a coherent idea of who you're going to go out and sign as your next manager and what kind of players you're going to look at. And then there's also the value in the academy. And there's a reason why Ajax has had one of the best academies in the world and has made a lot of money off of their academies because they have a consistent idea from youth level to youth level to youth level about how they want to go about playing soccer, and they produce very good players, at least in part because of that. So I think in American sports, and even in a lot of soccer, you see franchises that are are, are teams that are just out there with no plan from year to year. And I think we, we can almost think about this. We talked a lot about Manchester United last year, or last week, excuse me, it feels like a year ago. Um, and, and we talked about how Sir Alex Ferguson leaves, and what is that club, right? They, they no longer seem to have a coherent plan or philosophy. And really, compared to the standards that he had set, they crumble. And they're only just now starting to be rebuilt into something that sort of resembles what they've been in the past at their best. 
So I think without an idea, without an identity of who you want to be, a philosophy of how you view the game and how you view running a club, you, you kind of fall apart. In American sports and in soccer, we see the vast majority of clubs or teams without a real plan. So I think you see some of it in both. You see some of it in American sports. You see some of it in, in soccer. And ultimately, the ideas that Jack's talking about, I think, are kind of roped into this idea of an identity. I, I agreed. I think, like, when I think of the Yankees, I think of George Steinbrenner's rules about how, like, you can't have facial hair, you can't have long hair, you have to present yourself a certain way. And I think there are organizations that are like that, but I, I don't think that's what we mean at all when, we, when we're no. talking about this. Jo- Joe's covered it well. Like, my very simplistic way of explaining it is just, like, instead of letting the manager dictate the style of play, the club has a philosophy that the manager is then going going to either reflect or orient themselves around uh, so the idea being that if you bring in a manager, it's basically like you can have different styles, you can have little flourishes, but ultimately you're, you're going to play the game a certain way. I don't know, honestly, if there are if that really lends itself to a lot of American sports. I don't know if if baseball is really like that. Even football, I think, has like I remember like the West Coast offense when that broke out and you can have different styles of, of offense. But I think. That's sort of similar to different formations and different sort of little tactical nuances in soccer. But I, I think with football, American football, you have a style, the, de- the defenses adapt, you have a new style, and it's just kind of the natural evolution of sport. I don't know if there can be a, we're always going to have a Patrick Mahomes quarterback who's going to do crazy right. stuff and scramble. I think you can have offenses that will reflect that, but I don't know if that's like a, an ideology necessarily. The only sport that I could really see having some similarity was college basketball and the best example i can give is vcu basketball here in richmond where under shaka smart probably a decade ago at this point because now i'm old uh they make the final four for a, a, a university the size of vcu that's a major accomplishment and they did so by playing his style was called havoc and it's basically just a full court press for the entire game you're challenging inbounds you're doing everything you can to disrupt uh the opposition you're not letting them get it across uh midcourt if you can uh, prevent that and when Shaka Smart leaves, the next coach that comes in plays a very similar style. When that coach leaves, the next coach comes in and plays that style. And I think if you're a mid-major, having that identity, if you're recruiting then, recruits know we're going to be playing this way. It's going to be a ton of effort, but it means that we, we can have that success potentially if I'm not going to one of those like, big, big schools. So I think in that way, you can have a program that sort of keeps the uh, idea intact even if the coach comes and goes. Graham, any thoughts on this one? I'm just thinking of other sports. Taylor, I hadn't quite considered that, how unique soccer is in that regard in terms of, of, of playing style. Um, my mind, just because of ex- my mm-hmm. kind of expertise and knowledge of tennis, kind of goes to tennis. Obviously, that's a an individual sport, but I'm thinking of countries. French players tend to have quite a lot of finesse and how, how they play. Spanish players, high intensity. Americans are, are big servers generally, so maybe an element of that in tennis, but yeah, it's nothing close to what you have in, 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 in soccer. I don't know much about rugby. Would rugby potentially be one? Are there national teams that have a certain style of play? They all play Havoc. <laughs> that's, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Havoc and then Haka Havoc if you're New Zealand. <laughs> I feel like I should know more about this given that Scotland is one of the like eight countries in the world that actually plays rugby, but I, yeah. I'm afraid I don't. I think it's to, do with, it's to do with how much you drink afterwards is the philosophy. Ah, sure. and before. And during. And during. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I agree with everything that's been said. I think if it's a if it's a well run club, they have some form of idea of philosophy or, or style of play. But I I would argue that in a lot of cases that those philosophies and those identities start with a manager who's been very successful with their specific ideas. So Joe, you mentioned Ajax. You go back to uh Rhenish Michels being the, the pioneer of the of the way that they play. He then passes it to Johan Cruyff. Cruyff then takes it to Barcelona. Barcelona hadn't played that way before he arrives people talk about the Manchester United way I'm not entirely sure what that is I think that was just Sir Alex Ferguson and he was there for so long he was there for 25 years so again I think the two are inherently linked manager and and team even Pep Guardiola I take what you were saying Ryan of Man City I take that point of them kind of preparing the ground but I'll be interested to see what City do when he leaves just like I'll be interested to see what Liverpool do when Jurgen Klopp leaves and whether that is just an era defined by a single manager or if they build on that an identity like Ajax and Barcelona have so I think the two are are very much linked very good. Thank you very much, Jack, for that question. Very interesting debate there. Clay Wagner, or Wagner, I should say, has probably been in touch. What is the greatest individual record, achievement, or award given to an American male soccer player? Some that come to mind are Landon Donovan's 02 World Cup Best Young Player, Claudia Reyna making the 02 World Cup All-Star Team, and Tim Howard, 16 saves in a single World Cup match. Taylor, where do we start mm-hmm. here? I mean, I... I, I Dug in and did some research. I couldn't find any US players with the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award, which is obviously <laughs> the highest honor our society bestows upon people. But um, what, what do you think here? Brick Shea's photo shoots, they're quite a good achievement. I have aren't they? to believe that at some point <laughs> in the past or in the future, Christian Pulisic will be slimed. Uh, but until that happens, I, I thought long and hard about this. I looked up records. I am very satisfied that I have the answer. Uh, And that answer is that the bar at Craven Cottage is named after Brian McBride. I think that is the ultimate honor for an American. Wait, the pub or the crossbar? Which one? Uh, The pub. (laughs) Maybe both. Uh, Hopefully it's just uh, the pub. Uh, Not such an accolade if Brian McBride was hitting the (laughs) the crossbar so many times as as a Fulham player. They then named it after him. Is it still there when they redid the stand? Is it still there? I I checked last night. I think it is, but a lot of the articles are from like 2019 so hopefully it hasn't yeah. been changed maybe they've forgotten I mean, him in that time but they do do for, some changes taylor they did used to have a michael jackson statue at that place yeah we don't need to talk about that uh <laughs> what we can talk about is for his role in the great escape i think and then he has over 150 appearances plenty of goals for fulham uh he is i think like the, the sharpshooter is what the uh the one fulham article i read uh had him labeled as when it came to why they chose to name that pub but i think for an american to be that sort of part of an institution in English football is is a pretty uh, notable achievement. So that is my answer. Side note, if you go to Wikipedia and you look up Brian McBride, they have chosen a photo where he has, I can only call them shark eyes. His eyes are like straight up black and it's very off-putting. I don't know why Wikipedia has gone with that. So that is not the best honor, but the pub oh, that's at terrifying. Cottage. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? Like a, it's like a mask, you know, like it's, had, like it's had the eyes cut out and it, you know, you, you would put your own eyes behind that. I don't know why they're solid black, but they are. Taylor, maybe, black as maybe, a doll's eyes. Maybe Wikipedia have got something against him. Maybe they've got some Brian McBride and prejudice. <laughs> yeah. How long were you working on that? Seconds. Did it show? <laughs> yes. Well, that, that is my answer, though. Uh, I welcome other nominees, but uh, I, I don't know if they will have a pub named after them. <sighs> Graham. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything to beat that. I mean, that is the greatest honour, not just in soccer, but in, in humanity to have a, a pub named after you, particularly at a soccer stadium as well. So I don't have anything that, that, that beats that. I went down a more conventional route. So my suggestion, my suggestion would be Tim Howard making the PFA Team of the Year for the 2003-2004 season. So essentially, he was voted the best goalkeeper in the Premier League for a season. And going through PFA teams of the year in the Premier League era, I I couldn't find another American who has done that. So there's been Americans that have won, I believe believe Clint Dempsey won a Player of the Month award. I I found a couple of Player of the Months, but for a full season, I think that that is quite an accolade. Okay. Joe, any other ideas? Didn't Clint Dempsey score a fairly crucial goal for Fulham in Europe, I seem to remember? That might make the list. Yeah, I don't have that one on my list, but that's that's a good pick, Ryan. I have, I, mean, I have. That's really representative of Americans' achievements, that it's like in the Europa League quarterfinal, I think right. it was. Like, we did it. We made it. <laughs> you, you picked a bar, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, Taylor's just good. I hope that bar is, is still there, because having your bar torn down and losing your job in U.S. soccer in, in the hey. same you know, time span, not, not an ideal set. He needs a bar set. to visit right now. Right? Honestly. Yeah. Um I've got a few. So I thought of some, and then I asked the Discord for some answers as well, and, and theirs were exceptionally good, Cheating. I thought. So my first thought was Chelsea buying Christian Pulisic for $73 million. Mm. I don't know why. That feels like a big thing to me. It didn't really ever work in the way that I think everyone wanted it to, but becoming the most expensive American player and the most expensive North American player ever is is a big deal. So that was the first one that I thought of. And then I've got another one. This is a deep cut. We're going all the way back to 1930. Bert Patenod scoring the third most goals of the 1930 World Cup. That also feels big, although the 1930 World Cup was decidedly not big. He scored four goals, and there were, like, what, ten teams in that tournament? But still, being the third highest scorer at a World Cup is a big deal. And then the Discord popped off with some great answers. Shreyas had Clint Dempsey was fourth highest scorer in the Premier League in 2011-2012. 17 goals behind Rooney, Van Persie, and Aguero. That is an accomplishment to be sure. Madler09 had your your answer, Graham, Tim Howard winning goalkeeper of the year, basically. Or he also uh, they also said Confederations Cup Golden Glove in 2009. That's, that's a good one. And this one is my favorite one. This one does not beat Taylor's, but it is darn close. Snowman says Christian Pulisic being called the LeBron James of soccer on Pawn Stars. <laughs> that is so good. And I wish I thought of it on my own. I did not. That came from the Discord. Thank you, Snowman, for that. That's all I got. That might be it. In terms of broad coverage for the American public, was that was it porn wars or porn storage wars? I just, show? I just, it's it's Pawn Stars, Pawn Stars, Pawn Stars. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the coverage that Come show on, would Ryan, have listen. had, and it's it's probably had a billion reruns. That show. Oh yeah, that's, that's quite a lot of coverage. Well, and it, it went it went viral on Twitter as well, and I'm sure yeah. on other social media platforms because it's so just blatantly incorrect, but just very funny. Good stuff. All right, I like that one a lot. I've got some bad news, by the way, about the Brian McBride bar. Oh, no. <laughs> I believe that was in the stand that Fulham tore down to build that big, shiny new stand at the Riverside. I, yeah. So, yeah, maybe sus- not there anymore. I suspected it might have been. That is a big shame. I hope they will do something in its stead. Um, and, you know, that was also at the side of the stadium where two. the statue was for Michael Jackson, too, by the way. Fun. I think they built the new stand around that statue, though. They weren't about to remove that, so... That's too precious. It was sparkly. It was strange. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, Clay, for that question. Uh, Let's go to one from Forrest Lyle, who says, let me preface this by saying I am fully against the Saudi takeover in Newcastle. But Forrest says, if (laughs) 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 If you removed all of the human rights violations and sports washing, 
then wouldn't the ownership at Newcastle actually be the ideal model for club ownership? The investment is there on the field and in a community while not overstretching their resources so they can remain FFP compliant. I mean, I get, Graham, I get where Forrest is coming from here, but sure, it's ideal if you have an unlimited amount of resources with no ethical concern (laughs) tied to them. And I'd also argue that Say we're coming back to Man City again. They've also made massive investment in the community around yeah. the stadium in Manchester as well. They didn't necessarily overstretch themselves either to get where they are, even though, of course, they have had some FFP troubles uh, throughout the years. But I don't know how to handle this question, Graham. I think maybe everyone likes money, don't they? Yeah. Um, so if your club has lots of money, there's there's going to be an upside to that, and there certainly has been that with Newcastle United. This this might come down to personal opinion on what a soccer club is. For me, a soccer club is a community asset. In the modern age, we've sort of accepted that they're, they're also businesses, but I almost consider soccer clubs a public service. And so at a core level, I don't like slightly political here, but I don't like public services being at the mercy of capitalism. So yes, the, the, the Saudi Arabian Investment Fund is plowing cash into Newcastle United right now, but what if something were to change in a political sense in, in Saudi Arabia, or they just lose interest? I mean, we see that all the time with soccer clubs where a rich owner starts off spending loads of money and then it just dries up when they when they lose interest. I think that's what happened to Cardiff City and then they ended up in a pretty bad way when Vincent Tan lost interest in, in that team and soccer clubs are just they're just too important for that sort of thing in in, in my opinion so I'd always favor a, a fan ownership model that is the always for me the perfect scenario even with my uh, with my own team Sterling Albion where, where the, the team on the pitch has got a lot worse since the fans took over I am happy that we have that that ownership model and and I accept that fan ownership can't work for every club and it's especially difficult once you get to the size of some of the super clubs in the Premier League. I don't know if it would work for a Newcastle United or a Manchester United. I know in a sense it works for Barcelona and Real Madrid with the Barcelona with the socios model and Real Madrid have a similar model as as well. So maybe if you copied that in the Premier League, it would work. But while I understand what Forrest is saying, um, it's not my ideal model Uh, for, for an ownership. For me, Graham, I 100% agree with you and your opinions there, but I also recognise, like you do, that that opinion is not for everybody because it depends what you want to get out of soccer. For me and you, it sounds like we both view it as a community thing. And for me, also supporting a fan-owned club, it's the pride in being a part owner and having a say in that club and it being a part of my community that is important to me. So winning and being in the Premier League is not important to me. I don't care if we're never in the Premier League again because that's not what I value. Some people support their team because they want to win, and that and 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 that's fine. That's the primary motivation for supporting supporting a team. I imagine if you're at the top end of the Premier League, if you're a Manchester United fan, a Chelsea fan, Arsenal fan, whatever, that is probably a primary motivation is we want to win. For Sterling Albion, that isn't really. It's nice when, when we win. We're doing well this season, and that has been enjoyable this season. But it's not. It's not the reason I go to games. It's not. It's. It's not the primary motivation behind that, and so that informs what I, for me, my personal opinion on what the perfect ownership model is. All right, uh, comrades Rutherford and Bailey have spoken. Taylor, <laughs> how do you feel? 
Um, I, I probably take a different approach because, uh, like Newcastle is several thousand miles away from me. Uh, and so for me, it's less about the, like the match day experience (laughs) going to games. And I do think it is probably more so what will allow your club to compete at the highest level for as long as they can and and win some stuff along the way. I think that is a, a, a sort of metric for me. And in that way, yeah, I think Newcastle probably are a pretty solid model in terms of having an ownership group that doesn't seem to insert themselves into the decision making they don't have players that they want the the club to buy just because they like that player or they have a connection to them it seems like they're letting eddie howe do what he wants to do and building a, a smart squad that really seems to have been uh predicated on we are going to be a sustainable model of not cheating financial fair play we'll see if that ends up being the case but it does seem like they are actively trying to run themselves in a way that doesn't get them in trouble, that doesn't sort of bring them into the public eye, that doesn't have them saying, we'll hire $50 million worth of lawyers to fight you if you want to take us to court the way other notable giant clubs have done. So I think in that way, they are doing things very wisely and then certainly investing money into the local community. And I think like rewarding the faith of a long-suffering fan base is a pretty smart way to go about doing things. Uh, I just am also aware of everything behind it. So I think if that weren't behind it, I would probably be more uh, jealous of Newcastle and the way they're operating. Yep, I agree with Taylor. I I definitely fall much more in his camp than in the Graham and Ryan camp, which I think is understandable given how we all have grown up and in different areas that we've grown up in our different experiences. I don't think of sports or soccer as a community service program first. I think of them as as entertainment, really, and I, I like to be entertained by things that are either fun to watch or things that win. And so, ideally, they're both. And I think Newcastle have turned into a team that kind of does both of those things. And and, and the part that I the part that I'm genuinely curious about, right, is 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 this replicable other places? And it, it seems like it is not from the not from you know the the state backing. But could you go about as a you know average Joe Schmo billionaire and do what Newcastle have a done? Lot. Because they have had just your average Joe, it's an, <laughs> an oxymoron if I ever heard one. Your average Joe billionaire. I mean, can can you do this other places? Because can you guys think of a of a takeover that has gone better than Newcastle's? I, at least in recent memory, I cannot genuinely. I cannot think of one no, that has Lester. been Lester. That's okay. Close. Yeah, and, and they've sort of proven that it's not easy to sustain that but, over time, yeah, right? But, I mean, and also, Cities went all right, didn't it? Well, because no, like, they had that initial hurdle where they brought, signed way longer. too many players, longer, they yeah. spend way too much of being okay. yeah, they have Mark Hughes there. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I, can't think of a, I can't think of one. And I'm sure there are other really good examples yeah. out there of non-state-backed clubs that have had a lot of success basically from the jump. Well, this takeover was completed in October of 2021. That, that's what Google told me. I don't remember because time is a flat circle, but... That's not a very long time. That's like 13 months ago, 14, 15, 16 months ago. So I, I'm i curious to see, you know, could this be done other places? It doesn't seem like total rocket science to me to come in, have some smart yeah. business in the transfer window, build <laughs> yeah. out the front office and the staff of your club in a, in a smart way. I'm not saying Newcastle are, are necessarily going to finish in the Champions League spots every year from now on, but I'm also not not saying that. So this will happen way quicker than I thought it would. I don't really feel the need to give any credit to the ownership, frankly, but I would be curious to see if other clubs could have similar success to what Newcastle have had. I think I, th- I suppose that that is the key to Forrest's question then, because he's asking if you have a benevolent owner who, right. with no ethical concerns, who is willing to run things sensibly, um, not with austerity, mm-hmm. but with a, a good sense of common sense and and uh, and restraint, I suppose, Joe. 
then that is ideal, isn't it? Well, fr- from my perspective, it is just about there. You know, maybe there's other ways to run a club that I haven't thought about, other ways to take over a club that I, I've never thought about or that haven't been done. And I can understand that for you and Graham, you know, you would still maybe not agree with that, right? Yeah. But I, th- I think for me, yeah, it's, it's pretty darn close, right? I- uh, yeah, it is, it is close of what is feasible at Premier League level. Right. I think that right. is of the realistic options. That is the the best, um, you know, the best route. I would I would agree with that. But uh, also, I think an issue, Taylor. Perhaps you could weigh on this. The issue is with this owner, this that we're talking about here. They don't exist, right? Because who is that person? I mean, even if yeah. um, the the new perspective Man United owner comes in. Um, you know, it's going to build a fracking tower under Old Trafford at a diagonal angle like Mr. Burns did. <laughs> There's going to be some kind of issue. Drainage. Uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is that is the other, like, thing that is this, like, creeping, ominous feeling about Newcastle is, like, we don't quite know who, it, yeah, is in charge. We just know that there is a river of money that they can dip into as as needed. And there is, with that amount of money... There is that confidence of like playing at the five dollar table when you are a million, like a millionaire, like playing five dollar blackjack. Like I think there's the risk isn't really there, so you can just throw that money around and not worry about it so much. There's like a a responsibility to the way the the, the ownership group has gone about uh, conducting things at Newcastle, but with the swagger of we have limitless money. None of this is that serious to us, and I think that is the other thing that makes I think people uneasy about those giant takeovers is just that feeling of. Like, even Jim Ratcliffe, for example, if he takes over Manchester United, I think that's why the narrative has been childhood fan, his boyhood club. He cares about that team, and there is at least some idea of an emotional buy-in there. And and that is, I think, a thing that holds me back from liking certain ownership groups is not just their sort of odious human rights records, but also, it's definitely that, but it is also... That feeling of, at the end of the day, do you all actually care about this? Is this a thing that you all are excited by? Or is it another asset in your portfolio that allows you to have global recognition? And I think oftentimes it tends to feel like that second one and not the, we really care about this entity. I will close by saying, Ryan, if you're looking for a Joe Joe Schmo billionaire, I have one example for you. I will say two words and you will know who it is. Tres comas, my friend. Tres comas. Is that the Dosikis guy? Trace Commas? Russ Hanneman, man. Come on. Oh, if you'd, if you'd have blasted some Papa Roach from your Lamborghini, I'd have known exactly what you were talking about. Uh, Boris, thank you very much for that question. We'll be back with some more after this short break. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We have one more question on this here show from Michelle Sellers, who says, John Oliver has a comedy bit about being invited to the Liverpool squad and thinking he shouldn't do it because he's too big of a fan and would just embarrass himself. Are there any other players or managers you've all met who brought out the squealing fan in you or players you haven't met, but if you know you did, you would totally fanboy out? Graham, let's start with you here. So... Not really. I, I'm going to be a little bit boring here. Not any. There, I can't think of anyone who's brought the squealing fan out in me just because I don't know if there's anyone uh, a celebrity that'd be that excited to Andy meet. Murray. But I was Andy. Well, I've spoken to Andy Murray a number of times, so I guess that's maybe the closest. I used to be like local newspaper reporter in Dunblane, so I spoke to him maybe three times. So yeah, I'll remember that. And I was in a press conference with Sir Alex Ferguson once as a student journalist. 
And I was quite quiet for that. I think I only asked one question. I might have told this story before, but just moments before Fergie is about to walk into the room, the My United Press person comes over and, and talks to us and says, no questions about Manchester United, which left me a little bit flummoxed of what to ask him. Thankfully, everyone ignored that. But yeah, I, I was slightly intimidated by Fergie as, a, as an 18-year-old. And, and I was fortunate during five years that I worked at STV to, to interview... This sounds a little bit like bragging, but I guess it's related to this question. To interview loads of of interesting people. So I I don't want to sound ungrateful here, but the the novelty sort of wears off quite quickly. I'd go to Champions League press conferences and weekly pressers at Celtic and Rangers. Brendan Rodgers knew my name once, even though I wish he had never known my name. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I've ever been starstruck, but I remember the closest would be Messi doing a doing a presser for a Champions League game at Celtic Park, and and I think I asked one question, and that was that was a very packed room for that for that press conference. It was difficult to get a word in. Um, thankfully, being a national broadcaster, the press officer would direct a question to you, and I think that was the only. I think I asked like, "What did you What did you think of the atmosphere yeah. at Celtic Park?" or something along those lines, and that was me done. That was my one question, but. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I've interviewed... I can't remember if I've interviewed John McGinn, but maybe I have and it slipped out of my, my mind. But anyway, if I was to do that again, I think that backside would uh, leave me oh, starstruck. The other King Peach. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, the original King Peach. <laughs> uh, Joe, any any, uh, any, uh, any players or managers who bring out the squealing fan in you or who have done? Yeah, none. I've never squealed, thankfully. Um, I, I definitely have gotten nervous yeah. for interviews and some of these interactions, I, I definitely don't get that same way really anymore. I think you realize very quickly that these are also just people and they're kind of just doing their job and you're just kind of doing your job and they're like, all right, it's not a big deal. And if, if you don't make it a big deal either, then it's probably going to be fine. Um, my first time ever covering soccer in person at the at the national team level, I spoke with Greg Berhalter for a bit and, and that was sort of a big moment for me sort of starting my career early on, so that was that was one that I'll remember. Um, asked Don Garber a question in a sort of MLS State of the Union thing a couple of years ago, and, and that that was also sort of big. Just wanted to make sure you word your questions right. There's always this fear in me that I'm going to start talking and I'm going to slip up, and then all the other people who also do this for a living are going to look at me and think like, ah, oh, that guy, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. So always wanted to make sure I, I word things carefully, but no, nobody really. Ryan, when we interviewed Landon Donovan, that was that was a, a big one for me, just because Landon Donovan is is a famous American soccer player, and I cover American soccer. But no, I mean, Messi, I think, would would maybe get me closer to that than anybody else, Pep, as well. I'm just not really sure how those interactions would he, go. I don't I don't really know what that would be like. Messi speaks... So when I when I was in that press conference, he, he was speaking through a translator. Right. So you don't, you don't even really not get like the sense Messi, that you're right. talking to Lionel Messi. Yeah, right. he's just sitting and sitting in front of you. I, 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 there's not many... I don't know what it is, just because I'm used to that environment. Soccer players, I don't really get starstruck, but I'm much more likely to be starstruck by like a movie fa- a, a movie right. star or a, or a musician. So the... the the, the the aforementioned trip to Portland that I continued to talk about. Will Ferrell was in our was in our box, you know, that we that as as I was there as a guest at the Portland Timbers game against LAFC. I'd say I was pretty starstruck by Will Ferrell. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't quite get over the fact that Will Ferrell was like standing right next to me and I was talking to Will Ferrell. Mm. So yeah, in a, in a soccer environment, that's probably the most starstruck I've ever been. I think they never they never look like you think they're gonna look, do they? Like it always takes a moment of like, oh yeah, that is Will Ferrell. Like it, it's. I don't know. Yeah. I think with, I know with exactly. all the no, Taylor, everything. that's Chad Smith. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got that reference. 
Excellent. Uh, Graham, I, I think I feel the same way as you. In, I, I'm lucky enough to have done a lot of interviews in soccer, but it, it is like, like if, if I ever met Noel Gallagher, I think I would just flop into a puddle on the floor. I don't think I'd be able to handle it because he's very important <laughs> to me in my life. Um, but it, in terms of the interviews I've done where I've been intimidated or squealed a little bit, I think the one that always stands out to me is when I interviewed Zinedine Zidane. Uh, and it stands out for similar reasons you mentioned when you talked to Messi, Graham. I conducted the interview questions in English and he only replied in French. He's so, that is to say, he understands English perfectly, but will not speak it to you. And I've never... Sounds very Zidane, that. And yeah, and like, it was like an Adidas event and I, I had like two or three questions and it's in a room full of like 50 other people. So we went one of the first people to go, which is always a lot of pressure on you. Uh, and especially when everyone else is waiting to try and ask their own question. Uh, so it was a high pressure environment. And Zinedine Zidane's eyes... He, I, I could imagine if you had to square up to him like on the field, he, he, he would, he would make you cower. His eyes are just so piercing. He is a terrifying man, even though he was had a slight smile on his face when he's speaking to me in French. And I, I knew enough French to kind of understand what he was saying, but I just thought that is a baller move to not even speak back to me in the same language. I have to respect that. That was brilliant. And then I, I, I was remember, remember it well. I was with, was with, with, uh, with Grant, with Grant Wall, who's standing next to me. And afterwards, we were like, that was intimidating, wasn't it? Yep. He's he's a scary but terrific man, and uh, he was he was there. Um, they were promoting this ball which had a chip in it or something, and um, and he was wearing a suit with like regular dress shoes, and they were like, uh, uh, "Zinedine, would you like to take a few shots?" And he's like, "Okay." So he's just wearing his suit and everything, and he just like they had like spots on the wall he had to hit. He was hitting him every single time. <laughs> it just looked ridiculous because he's you can when you see a professional kick a ball, it just looks different to you and me. And to yeah. sit up close and see him do that, it was just spectacular. So that was a That's that was a highlight. I don't know if anyone else has this whenever talking to soccer players, but they just seem to be made out of granite as well. They're so solid in in terms of just they're they're even when they're shorter than you. I mean, I'm 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 quite tall. Even when they're shorter than you, you just think they are absolutely solid. Which I guess is the is the way that it has to be given you know they're playing every week and training I've, every day. I've had the opposite feeling, honestly. Like I I think the first game I I, I ever like covered with big teams, I have mentioned it previously, I think it was like a Chelsea uh AC Milan game, like one of the preseason friendlies. And seeing I expected Gattuso, knowing how like his build and everything, I still thought he was gonna be seven feet tall. And for him to be much shorter than me, still very strong, like don't get me wrong, but they they are like a lot of players do weigh 150, 140 pounds. That is that is such an odd thing. But then people like Angel Di Maria, you realize, are similar to like Mickey from Snatch, like built like a coffin nail. Uh, so there yeah. is that like hardness even when they're really lean. I think the thing that maybe maybe people like would be surprised to know if they haven't been in a mixer or in a press conference is like no one wants to talk to journalists. That's the thing that I think is always. Uh, a conundrum is most of the time if you're interviewing a coach, if you're interviewing a player, the vibe is fine. What do you want? Like it's it's <laughs> such like nobody wants. And so Ferguson, I imagine Graham in that presser when it was no Man United questions, every single one was probably a very curt answer. Every now and then, maybe there'll be one that they find interest in. But I I remember I got to ask him one question. And it was about if we would see them play a four four two again, and his response was, "Manchester United's never played a four four two under me." Next question, and it was just like, "Oh, okay." And I definitely asked it with like <laughs> like quaking voice, but I, I think 
there is this idea that some players will definitely be jovial and interested in chatting, and, and you can bring that out of them a little bit. But I think for the most part, players are trying not to say yep. interesting things. They don't want to say inflammatory things, so they're just trying to keep it even keel. Um, so the one that like I always think is an interesting just like vibe, this doesn't quite answer the question, but it is the thing that I feel most often is a feeling amongst journalists of act like you belong, act like you belong, act like you mm. belong. And so when I remember Messi leaving a locker room, going through the mix zone, and there is just this like hush that falls because everyone is just sort of like, it's Messi, it's Messi, oh my gosh, it's Messi. And then he leaves the mix zone, walks out into public, and there's just this eruption of noise because it's Messi and everybody wants photos and everybody wants autographs. And so often, I think, especially when it comes to MLS, Joe, you probably have some experience with this because you can go into the locker room and be there with these players as they're just chatting. That's the one where you do really have to be like, I am a professional and I am here to ask interesting questions because I remember at All-Star, in or- or All-Star Game in Orlando going into the, to the locker room and there were like two guys blocking the door, three guys blocking the door. And I was like, oh, excuse me, I need to get by. And they all looked at me. And then I realized it was Carlos Vela, uh, Hector Herrera, and jo- like Jonathan Dos Santos just kind of like hanging out, having a conversation shirtless right outside of the locker room. And like they're just friends having a conversation after a game. But for me, it's just very like, oh, hello, gentlemen. Good to see you. Hi. Nice to-. And like trying to act <laughs> like I'm totally cool and like, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm like you guys, except I'm not. Why do you guys all have nine packs? That's weird. Uh, so I, I think – it's 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 always a little bit intimidating for me. The, Sir Alex Ferguson was the most intimidating person I've ever gotten to ask a question to. Oguchi uh, Yewu really did not want to talk to me. That was one that still stands out to me. as like, ooh, I made that guy mad. Uh, and then in terms of the people that would probably make me fanboy out a little bit and I would just end up being the Chris Farley SNL thing of like, remember that? That was awesome. Uh, was, is Nemanja Vidic, for sure. Francesco Totti, I think I would just stare at him with my mouth open. And Didier Drogba. Those are the three that I think would I would have difficulty asking coherent questions other than like, you're great. And then just leave it at that. And they'd be like, okay, weirdo, bye. I think those are the three that I would <laughs> let you guys ask the questions and I would just hang back. Wow. Zlatan would be the one I'd be most... Oh yeah, of, just because you don't know what's you don't know what's coming, yeah. you don't know how, what answer you're getting you, to your you, question. You know what's coming? It's just going to be some variation of him talking in in third person, right? I think that's the yeah. only thing. <laughs> he is a wild card. You couldn't handle that. that that'd be very difficult, professionally speaking. Um, Taylor, I'll say I know where Francesco Totti is every Saturday morning. It's quite near here, and I know that nobody ever goes near him because yep. I think they're all terrified to speak yep. to Francesco Totti. While As well, they should be. Yeah. He's a global treasure. We must indeed. preserve him at all costs. He is indeed the king of the city in which I reside. And we shall park listener questions here. Thank you very much, Taylor Rockwell, King Peach himself. <laughs> my pleasure, my friend. Graham Rutherford, Peachy as always, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan Billy. You too. And Joe, something to do with Peaches in California. Thank you very much. Peace, Peach to you, Ryan. <laughs> Peach out, listener. We'll be back here very shortly on the feed. But for now, bye. Bye. <laughs>